Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, First, uh, before we start the show, I want to thank Governor Douglas for filling in for me last week. I was supposed to be on vacation for a whole week in Gettysburg, which is my most favorite place in the world. It was supposed to be a birthday present, but I bet you can figure out what happened, and here I am. <laughs> oh, as they call it staycation, right, with flooding. Um, we were very lucky at our house, thank goodness. It just water in the basement, which had to be cleaned out. But I know many of you are facing a lot more devastating situations And I'm so sorry for what you are going through. I am sending out kudos for all uh, Vermonters and those uh, from out of state who stepped forward to volunteer uh, for the municipal workers, emergency management, construction workers, AOT, and the list goes on and on. And I particularly uh, want to send out prayers for those impacted by the flood. There's a lot of work ahead of all of us. Um, Just remember, we are Vermont strong. So do me a favor and stay well and stay Vermont strong. Um, today, um, I've got a couple of interesting guests. My, for the first hour, we're going to be talking to Ben Kinsley, who's the principal owner of Imperium Advisors. Uh, he was last on the show talking about pre uh, the voting session, what, what we would expect to happen. And we're going to follow up with that, the veto section. What did I say, voting section? And he's, he's kind of smiling at me like, seriously? Um, but we're going to follow up with what happened at the veto session and what to expect going forward. Um, so there you go. Welcome. Thank you, Pat. Thank Good you. Year. Yep. And then from 10 to 11, I have several guests um, who are with Highway Safety, and that will be a very interesting show, I think. I, they, they, these folks are sort of part of uh, what is ne- renamed Highway Safety, but it used to be the governor's Highway Safety Program, which which reported into me at Motor Vehicles. So I know a little bit this time about what I'm talking about. So that's good. Anyway, welcome, Ben. It's uh, You're my go-to guy on all the what's happening in the legislature, and he's been on before. Um, but we just wanted to bring you up to speed on, on what was going on and what was overridden by the legislature, what was, what was not overridden, the governor's veto. And... Um, what to expect next year, and there's a couple of little twists and turns along the way. So let's talk about the the bills that um, were overridden by the legislature. I think we've discussed many of these, but if you want to just go through them fairly quickly, tell us what what the highlights are. Yeah, um, obviously the the budget was the big one um, that was overridden by the legislature. Uh, the governor had vetoed it, um, looking at a you know 12% spending increase. He felt like that was unsustainable, um, given where the state is. Uh, and uh, he had uh, voiced on this show actually, um, that, uh, but prior to the veto session, that uh, he thinks the the state is likely headed for a recession, um, and uh, he's seeing those uh, economic storm clouds. Um, and so that was something that he was. Um, that he was looking at when he vetoed that uh, that budget with a 12% spending increase in it. Uh, the next bill was universal child care. That was H217, um, and that's uh, um, you know another bill that he felt like uh, was too big of a bill. 
Um, and a uh, little bit of feedback there. Yeah, um, the uh, so he felt like that was too big of a uh, of a spending item. Um, you know, we'll get into that maybe a little bit later, like how how much that actually was. Um, but you know, potentially talking hundreds of millions uh, there. Um, you know, this one kind of flew under some of the, the other ones that got overridden sort of flew under the radar. Um, first one was an OPR bill, which uh, they pass almost almost every year. Oh. May I tell you, as a legislator, and I've told this to the OPR people, it is pages and pages and pages of increases to licenses and stuff. And um, we always dreaded when the OPR bill would come into the committee. Anyway. Yeah, and, and that bill basically, um, you know, the, the, the OPR itself is not going to mean a whole lot to folks. But basically what that is is licensing fees. Um, that's going to be, uh, you know, any time that you're – dentist or doctor or uh, plumber or whatever professional uh, goes to renew their license, right? So most of these professions are regulated by the state. There's state oversight. Um, and then there's application fees every time, uh, every year when you go to renew that license, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this bill often will ch either change the structure of those oversight programs um, or change the fees. Well, this year it changed the fees basically with a 20% bump across the board, increasing all of those fees 20%. Now, the thing with fees in state government, and Pat, you know this, <laughs> is that fees um, uh, fees are flat, typically. Uh, sometimes they're a percentage fee, but usually they're flat. Um, and, uh, and they're meant to cover the cost of the program being administered, right? So there's some level of oversight for that profession that's getting licensed, and, you know, there's cost running that program. Usually they're not terribly high, um, but those fees are supposed to be commiserate with the cost of administering that program, that oversight program. Um, you know, so in this case, uh, the budget also contained a fee increase, but it contained a fee increase on DMV. That was right. also 20%, right? So it matched that 20% increase that we saw in the OPR fee bill. Um, and... Uh, there is really no justification for right. that 20% increase. It, it feels a whole lot like a revenue mechanism. Tax. <laughs> well, it's worse, actually, than that because it's regressive, right? Oh, it's, not, it's not sensitized by income. Um, and so, you know, child care providers, for example, right. um, who are not very high up the income scale, uh, automotive technicians, you know, think right. people like construction workers now. Actually, two years ago, construction workers have a – um, um, ha now have a uh, uh, a program they have to renew every year. So like these are folks that not not very high up the income scale, but they're still paying those fees. Right. And, and, uh, and DMV impacts everybody. And DMV impacts it, everybody. It, yeah. That's what's upsetting me. But and I don't think the legislature looks at those increases, and and I don't think they do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And this was not in response to. Uh, and this was not in response to. Um, a situation where the the agencies administering these programs said, "Hey, our costs have increased. Obviously, right. their costs have increased somewhat, but you know, call right. that five, six, seven percent, right. whatever, not twenty percent in one year." But um, those agencies were not asking for an increase. They're saying, "We're we're within our budget, um, and we're within the revenue being generated by these fees." This was a legislative initiative to to, to increase these, and that's you know. 
um, something we'll talk about a little bit later. Yes, we will. But, um, now, it upsets me that with DMV because I know DMV, and, and I don't – they're supposed to check what that overage is and mm-hmm. what what the fees are supposed to cover. But I think they forgot that part of the of Maybe, the maybe forgot that part. <laughs> the last two that the legislature overrode were the um, Brattleboro char- uh, charter change. This was a charter change to allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote in municipal elections. Mm. Um and uh, the governor vetoed that, uh, and then the legislature overrode him. And then uh, there was a Bennington charter change, uh, or sorry, a Burlington charter change that would allow non-citizen voting. Um, and that uh, and that also got overridden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think those ones kind of fall in the category of uh, if municipalities want to do this on their own, you know, the legislature feels like they should, um, particularly if there's some guarantee or hope of increased access to um, to elections. There were some fairly severe or fairly restrictive constraints on those bills. So, like, how many people that actually impacts is questionable. Um, but, uh, yeah, those were two two other bills that sort of flew under the radar for the most part that the legislature overrode. So that means uh, when the governor uh, vetoes a bill, it goes back to the legislature for consideration, and all of these bills were overridden by the legislature because they wanted them to be made into law, and there you go. Well, and the legislation needs a two-thirds majority in order to do that. Right. Um, you know, something that you'll hear a lot about, um, you know, from from political pundits is, uh, you know, this supermajority in the in the legislature. Um, the the Democrats and progressives combined have a supermajority yeah. after the election last year. Um, and what that means is that they have a two-thirds majority. They don't have to win over. Right. Um, any Republican uh, legislators yeah. in order to override the governor's veto. So that's what that means when they talk about a supermajority in the legislature. You know, as long as uh, as long as that caucus holds together, they can override. Yeah. Um, so there were some bills that did not get overridden. And I was very glad to hear about uh, S39. Why don't you talk about those uh, two that were not overridden? Yeah, I mean, the two that were not were were pretty consequential, to be honest. One of them was the legislative compensation package. Um, it was a bill that would have doubled legislative pay, just the salary alone, right. doubled um, by 2026, and then uh, also created a whole new benefits package that didn't exist at before. No cost. At, at no cost. Well, <laughs> um and so, but that included things that most Vermonters don't have access to. Right. Um, obviously, healthcare, state employee healthcare plans, uh, which are pretty, pretty robust. Yes, they're great. Um, it included uh, child care and dependent care. So, if you have an adult dependent that uh, requires services, covers both of them, um, and that's fully paid for. And then um, the, some of the other things that it that it changed is it changed the, uh, in addition to the benefits, and there's a couple other benefits we can, we don't need to go into details, but pretty robust benefits package. Um, the other thing that it did is it uh, um, changed the way that expense reimbursements work. So instead of having to submit for actual expenses, um, it changes that default, um, the default to a, a stipend. Ben, I did not ask you about your, 
Um, you are the principal owner of Imperium Advisors. So before we continue this discussion, you have to tell <laughs> us about Imperium Advisor. Yeah, we're, we're a small consulting firm uh, that does uh, policy research and development, mostly for nonprofits, uh, but obviously follow what the legislature is doing pretty closely um, and uh, try to stay on top of things. Obviously, Vermont's a happening place in terms of uh, legislative policy, so there's a lot, a lot of moving a lot of moving pieces. I don't know what you do. He is a great policy guy. I go to him for all of the, all of his analysis on policy. So anyway, well, back to the bills. There's another category um, that uh, we didn't talk about much at all. If a bill goes to the governor and he has how many days? Ten. Um, yeah, he has a handful of days uh, to sign it. Um, it's a it's number of working days um, yeah. and. Uh, and if he doesn't sign it, then it goes into law without his signature. So right. this is a way of um, something becoming uh, becoming law without his explicit endorsement. Yeah, I'm never quite sure what that is supposed to mean, but it's because it becomes law. So what <laughs> what is the difference anyway? Could yes. you go through those bills about the uh, uh, the first one was the I'm going to talk about it was the Budget Adjustment Act, and I'm surprised they waited the whole legislative session to deal with this. Um, bill because budget adjustment is what they needed money for for the oh I don't think year. they did I think they uh, I think the legislature passed it back in January um, and the governor let it go into law without a signature oh okay so this wasn't now this was back I when so, okay yes. that makes yeah. sense because you can't you really can't go on to the budget without the budget adjustment act being being uh, approved well and for the listeners the budget adjustment act is um, <laughs> basically taking the current the state Fiscal year runs, um, uh, you know, July one through the end of uh, June. So it's offset by the count cal- from the calendar year by six months. So when the legislature comes back in January, they're halfway through the fiscal year. Um, and so often the first thing they do is look at, okay, where are we pacing for spending compared to what the budget w- was originally, and they make adjustments. So the first bill to come out almost always right. is the, the budget adjustment <clears throat> act. Um, where they're tweaking the current fiscal year budget at the halfway mark. Okay, basically. well that makes sense. They did it because you you can't do the budget without knowing what the actual um, adjusted amount is from mm-hmm. the prior. Yes, budget. they look at like spending. They look at revenues, or right. revenues meeting expectations, things like that. Okay, so what else uh, went through without his uh, appro- approval? Well, there's two two bills that we didn't talk about that that got. Um, one of them got overridden and one of them didn't. Uh, the first one is interrogation tactics for minors. This was a bill that the legislature had passed. Um, law enforcement was adamant that, uh, you know, they still need to be able to interrogate minors who witness crimes. Um, and they felt like this bill prevented them from doing that, at least to some degree. Um, so the governor vetoed it and the legislature did not have the votes to override it. Hmm. So, um, so for now that bill sits. Good. And then the, um, the other bill that was vetoed, that was interesting enough, was passed during the veto session by the legislature, and mm-hmm. then the governor subsequently vetoed it, and that's the bottle bill. Um, this, we could probably spend a whole, sh- whole show talking about this. And <laughs> no, no, not, I have a plan for the rest uh, of the show. But, uh, <clears throat> but the bottle bill essentially increased uh, increased that deposit that you make on certain types of beverage bottles, um, glass, plastic, aluminum. Um, and also added new categories um, to that as well. And that's, uh, you know, there's a pretty hot policy debate around whether or not um, these things are appropriate. Uh, bottle, you know, the, the bottle bill itself is appropriate. Um, 
given the kind of the world that we live in today with access to recycling. Um, so that's uh, that's a, a discussion for another day. But uh, mm. um, but that was over. That was vetoed by the governor, and the legislature will have to take it up in January. So then we have this category of um, just passing, becoming law without his signature, which is the rank choice voting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was a, a bunch of bills. Um, you know, probably the top two uh, that kind of went into law without signature. Uh, rank choice voting um, was one of them. Uh, the governor has uh, been somewhat reluctant to embrace rank choice voting. Um you know, and, and to be honest, municipalities have been somewhat reluctant. I mean, Burlington passed it and then repealed it and passed it again right. over the last uh, two decades. It's very, it's hard to understand. We've had a show on um, uh, Paul Hines. Was it somebody? I can't remember who came in to talk about it because he did a great job, but it's just hard to put together. I, I think it's actually, it's not hard to understand. It's hard to explain. Oh, there you go. I think is the is is the way to think about it. Because if you, if you're, a voter and you're sitting down and and looking at a ballot, you know, you still have a bunch of people listed on the ballot. Um, but instead of those little bubbles, uh, you might have um, you might have letter numbers. It's like, oh, my, mm. my top vote is this one. My second vote is this one. My third vote is this other one. And I don't care about anybody else. Right. Right. Um, and what that does is it allows you to vote for your top choice, your true top choice, and you're not influenced as much by who you think is the best chance of winning. Because what happens is if your top choice turns out to be not as popular, then then it drops to your next choice. So let me could you could then only vote for two and that's okay? You could vote for one, you could vote for two, you could vote for however many people are. You don't have to vote for whatever. Correct. Yeah, you don't have to vote for for whoever. And the way that it works is it's a form of instant runoff voting. Um, So you can think about it like in a runoff election, you know, you're going to have you're going to have an election with multiple more than two candidates. Right. It's going to be three, four, five candidates, whatever. And then one of them is the least is the lowest has the lowest number of votes. So you hold another election. Right. And to, to at a smaller field after that lowest vote candidate has dropped off. Hold another election. Everyone comes back and votes again. Hmm. Typically, only do that twice uh, in a in a runoff election. Right. But the problem is, you have to hold a whole another election. Right. So what what ranked choice voting does is it's that same exact mechanism, but it's one set of votes. Right. So you don't have to come back. You're getting all your votes down at once. I'm like, this is the first person, my first choice, and then if that person's eliminated, here's my next choice and mm-hmm. my third choice, and so on. Because so two, I think, would be my would be my limit. When mm-hmm. I'm voting, that always seems to be the case. Anyway, let's let's finish this up by 9:30 because I want to focus on your report. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that, so that was the big one. Um, one of the big ones. The other one was uh, universal school meals, which we'll right. probably talk a little bit of, more about in yeah. the second half. Um, that was another one where I think the governor was worried about the uh, lack of a financing mechanism for that. Uh, essentially. You know, essentially those funds, which is about $30 million a right. year, um, will come out of uh, property taxes. Right. So, you know, I think he was a little concerned about that, um, and uh, but not concerned enough to veto it. So right. And it became law. So it became law without his signature. Right. Um, yeah, and then there's a, you know, a number of other bills. 
that that this happens to again for that same sort of reason. Uh, you know, the, the governor doesn't take uh, you know t- may, might take exception with it or doesn't want his name on it, right. but um, uh, but he's not so adamantly opposed to it that he'll prevent it from becoming law. And those three that I had down, I'm not sh- we've never covered these, but community resilience and, uh, and biodiversity protection. I have no idea. Yeah, I think this is a um, th- this is an Act 250 uh, bill. Is my I haven't read this bill, but that's my my sense of what okay. it probably is. Well, that's and another it, whole show. And it has to do with forest <laughs> fragmentation. Is my, my uh, guess is what that is. Okay, and the other one was reduce suicide and community violence. Not sure why he vetoed yeah, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> sure, there's a story. And the last one was the adult use and medical cannabis program. Yeah, and this is something that. You know, the governor has been uh, somewhat opposed to for a long time. You know, he's very reluctant to, to embrace cannabis. Right. Um, and uh, I'm not sure the specifics of this particular bill, but this right. is kind of in line with his uh, his philosophy. It's hard to cover them all. How, do you have any idea how many bills were introduced this year? Oh, do gosh. You, know? you probably don't. It was over 200. Yeah, and, um, and there's just... The committees can only take up so much, and um, yeah. it just gets so confusing. And then at the end of the year, they try to they try to even pass even more. Actually, I should say there was almost 500 introduced. There's about wow. only 200 that actually got right. know, got taken up. You call it the rust wall when the, when the card gets put <laughs> on the wall and stays there. Yes, exactly. But anyway, right now Ben has done something which I have been talking about forever. I think we should have a budget clock at the legislature. We should put a bill in that adds up all of the bills as they pass them. Because when you look at a bill about a, a child and, and how can, oh, it's only, no, $200,000. That's not much. Let's, let's pass it. Then you take up another bill and it's $500,000 and, oh, that's only $500,000. let us pass it. And I do think that the legislature should recognize the total amount as it adds up, which is what the I love that the clock they use for the oh the debt clock the, that, yeah, yeah the yeah. debt clock with trillions billions who the heck knows what it's for the uh, national debt yeah so that's what I think should happen because I don't think anybody realizes when you're saying yes to these bills that guess who gets to pay for them well uh, you know m- maybe we should have a debt clock for Vermont yeah, too exactly uh, but it would be more like uh, an unfunded liability. <laughs> clock perhaps <laughs> yeah. is, is more of what it would be um this is not exactly that this is uh this is a report we put out um this past weekend uh um that we uh, worked on for campaign for vermont um you can find it um on the campaign for vermont website if you're interested but basically what we did is we, we went through and looked at all the new revenues um, that the legislature passed this year, and that um, revenues are different than spending um, because this is additional monies being collected from Vermonters, right? So um, think taxes, fees, um, things like that. These are revenues that mm-hmm. are going into state-sponsored programs um, that are coming out of Vermonters' pockets. Right. Um, <clears throat> so there are some significant ones this year. Uh you know, and, and this was sort of interesting because um, we were looking at a 12% budget increase, which is twice the rate of inflation, um, and then also some pretty historic uh, landmark pieces of legislation that passed this year. And we're wondering, like, what is the impact going to be? Um, so that was kind of the inspiration for this particular report. 
Um, but uh, yeah, we can we can dive right in if yeah, you want. Please go right ahead. <laughs> uh, the first one. This was really the only outright tax um, that was passed this year, um, but it was the payroll tax for the child care bill. And uh, this this funding is going to expanding uh, subsidies, both the amount of the subsidy, but also the subsidy um, uh, eligibility for uh, child care um, services. So it would make um, families up to 100, like fa families with a, a household of four, um, and uh, would make them eligible for a subsidy up to $172,000 uh in year a year in income so pretty it goes pretty far in the middle class wow. upper middle class um so it's you know that's kind of important for the context of that of that bill to understand like who actually is benefiting from um from that uh piece of legislation and it's, it's going to be you know the, the subsidies themselves are going to grow for some of the folks on the lower end of that scale but it also there's a whole n section of folks that are going to be eligible that were not eligible under the, you know, under the previous criteria. Right. So that's important to know. Um, but uh, the revenue generated, at least for FY 2025, is expected to be a hair under 82 million. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and that's from a new payroll tax. Mm -hmm. um, two thirds of that payroll tax is supposed to be funded by employers, and then one. Uh, you know, one quarter of it is expected to be funded by employees unless employers choose to cover that last 25% themselves. They have the option to do that. <laughs> Gee, let's see how, what they'll decide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this one is, is the only outright tax that was passed, um, but it was uh, it's, it's hidden a little bit. You'll still see it show up as a line item on your paycheck, but the bulk of it is being paid by the employer, not the employee. Um, so. so this only impact, impacts people who are working now. Who, Correct. Who are so people like myself it. who are retired, there's no impact. It's just, sadly, workers. Uh, or, or somehow are we paying for it too? Um, it depends if your retirement benefits are income taxable. Depends on what you're... Oh, well, it, then we're in it too. It depends on whether, yeah. So it depends on that. <clears throat> um, Didn't get much attention though this last year. It just sort of... It happened. didn't because the fund the financing mechanism wasn't worked out until the very end. Right. Um, and it's a and it's a point four four percent payroll tax. Right. Um, which is brand new. Yeah, which is why people didn't know much about it till mm -hmm. it was passed. Um, the uh, some of the other ones uh, that are less obvious, uh, universal school meals, which we talked about, um, that is a thirty million dollar expense. Um, but it's falling. The way that it works is it's not an outright tax increase. What's happened is that they are pulling those funds out of the education fund, um, that $30 million a year to pay for universal school meals. And the problem is that the default funding mechanism for the education fund is property taxes. And since they didn't put any new revenues from anywhere else into the ed fund, what's going to happen is that property taxes are going to increase $30 million more mm -hmm. to pay for that, uh, that new expenditure. So, um, so even though it's not an explicit tax increase, really what's happening is they are raising local, uh, uh, local education tax rates for everybody to cover that $30 million expense. Excellent. Yep. Um, the other one we sort of talked about as well, the, the next kind of biggest one 
um, which is $21 million in fee increases. So this is spread across two bills. This is spread across the budget, right. which has the DMV fee increases, right. which is the bulk of it, and then also the OPR bill. Right. Um, again, that's basically a 20% increase in fees across the board, and that is projected to yield $21 million in revenue right. uh, annually. Um, the, the next one, which is a brand new program, um, is uh, $10.6 million for huh. um, sports wagering. And this one is a little bit of a moving target because this is a brand new program, um, you know, legalizing sports wagering, online sports betting, um, and uh, and there's a little bit of a guessing game um, how much revenue it's going to bring in. That 10.6 number is for year two um, because they're going to implement in the middle of the current fiscal year. Uh-huh. So there's only going to be a partial year's worth of revenue, and there a lot of the advertising for that program probably won't be out yet. So they're projecting year two will be 10.6 million. Um, but it's likely going to grow from there. Um, so that's a new revenue source for the state. Uh, bottle redemption. This one was vetoed by the governor. So we're sort of assuming here that the legislature will override it in January because yeah. as as it stands currently, this is not going to go into, into law. And it could just be reintroduced. Next and it year. could be re- reintroduced. Right. But assuming the bottle redemption bill does pass, that's $4.4 million in additional revenue um, that the state will be collecting. Yeah. Um, and then finally, this is the other piece of that of those fee increases. The OPR bill is expected to be five point three million dollars in revenue. Um, there are two others that are a bit of a moving target, <laughs> which we'll talk about. the uh, The first one is a new mileage based user fee for electric vehicles. Whoa! So they are committed to implementing it in twenty twenty six, but there's no number on it yet. Excellent. So we, they're like, we're instituting a mileage-based user fee for EVs in 2026. We have no idea what it's going to cost. But right. we passed it into but law. But we passed it into law. Excellent. <laughs> so we have no idea. So there's a big TBD on that one. Yep. But it is going to be a new increase in, in uh, revenue collection. We just don't know what the impact's going to be. Sort of similar to that, everyone's favorite topic. Don't go there, Ben. <laughs> Is S5. Oh. Uh, there is a range of estimates on what that's going to cost. Um, now, to be clear, you know, some people will call this a tax. Some people say it's not a tax. Um, what do the people that say it's not a tax say I'm it not, is? I'm not going to get into the <laughs> oh arguments on that one today. Goodness. Um, but, uh, but the reality is it is collecting revenue um, and directing it into state funded state-sponsored programs, right? So that the reality is, regardless of whether you call it a tax or not, it is a revenue collection mechanism um, and a revenue distribution mechanism. So the the only numbers, the most accurate numbers we have out there, which proponents will say is overblown, but this is what we have, is the ANR estimates on that, um, which are $240 million a year for a five-year time frame. So there's a, and that's only a five-year estimate, but within that first five years of program implementation, we're looking at $240 million a year in revenue. Um, that is a huge number that dwarfs everything else we've talked about. So, I think they shouldn't be allowed to vote on bills until we know how much it's going to cost. A little constitutional thing here, right? Uh, yeah, so the, the Vermont Constitution uh, does say that every piece of legislation or every Every revenue, piece of revenue that the legislature raises, they have to be able to prove that 
that there's a greater public benefit than if those monies had never been spent. And that, you know, if you don't do an analysis on a piece of legislation, how can you even make that argument, right? Um, so, you know, that this, uh, we were talking about like the cost of some of these bills and there's a big asterisk next to the estimates on S5 because, um, the, uh, the joint fiscal office, which is the legislature's economists, um, haven't done a full cost estimate on this. <laughs> right. Uh, the agency of, edu- the agency of, um, agriculture, or excuse me. Natural natural resources, that one, sorry. That's okay. A&R did do an analysis, a a quick analysis on this. Um, It's not a full-blown deal, but their number came out at like $240 a year. Um, But we still don't truly know what it's going to cost. It could be more, it could be less, who knows. But, you know, the only number we have to go on is that $240 number. Is anybody challenging the constitutionality of this action? Not at this point. Um, I haven't heard any any challenges on it. But any time that you like pass a program without understanding its full costs and benefits, then um, you know that sort of raises some of those questions. Right. right. Well, there were a lot of people asking last year. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people voted and mm-hmm. said, I mean, sent in notes and said, "Do not pass this." Yeah, this is the most controversial piece of legislation right. I've seen in a long time. Yep. Um, I, I think back to uh, single-payer health care maybe is the only other one that yep. was really close to this level of public engagement. Um, and the legislature really shrugged it off. They called it, you know, people's concerns, misinformation, or um, uninformed, or, you know, really kind of talked down to people in a right. lot of ways. I even had a discussion about S5 in Price Chopper one day. Everybody was is involved in this conversation. And I don't think the legislature realizes how deep this mm-hmm. conversation went because they were very knowledgeable about what the bill was doing. I'm like, good for you. And, and we could do a whole show on this, t- <laughs> this topic. So <laughs> exactly. I don't want to get too sidetracked. Yeah. So give but, us the, um, shall we do a, a, a drum roll about how much this all costs to get Yeah, what does the bill here, come out to? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um so we did a couple different forecasts based on, uh, you know, stuff that we know to be true versus stuff that might be true, right? Um, so at a minimum, uh, starting in 2025, Vermonters can expect to pay $152.2 million a year. Um, that number is likely going to be higher um, because that mileage-based user fee for EVs that we talked right. about, that's going to go into effect as well, but we don't know the cost of that. So put an asterisk next to that number, but it's 152 plus million dollars a year. Um, and then if S5 does pass uh, in you know the, the clean heat standard, right now the current status of that is it's going to the Public Utility Commission for them to start building the program. Before that program goes fully into effect, parts of it will go into effect, but before it goes fully into effect, has to come back to the legislature in 2025 for final approval. Hopefully, by then, we should know what the cost right. is, right? So if that cost is consistent with the ANR estimate and the legislature does move forward, um, we're looking at $392 million a year. Um, on top of, on top of where, all the others. where we are now. On Excellent. top of where we are now. Um, if you look at what that means for taxpayers, so there's about um, 295,000 households in the state that pay taxes. Um, that what that means for for families is somewhere between $516 and $1,328 a year 
in additional cost of living increases on top of uh, today's today's expenditures. So, Unbelievable. Um, and again, that's starting in 2022. Um, it's a tw- window of 2022 to 2025 that those increases will happen. That's really great. And then, besides all of this, they have all of these legislative committees, which they're going to be working on this summer. There's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, ten of them. And they also have some studies that are being done. Um, and they'll be discussed in the uh, when the legislature comes back. Um, any of them stick out for you about being really important as far as uh, we're going to be tracking some legislative committees, I'm, I'm assuming, some of them. Yeah, I think the biggest one, honestly, is actually the Public Utility Commission um, as they start to design this clean heat standard. Right. Um, you know, this one is one that we've really followed um, through Campaign for Vermont because it's it's got such a potential large impact on middle class Vermonters um, and low income you know low income Vermonters too to be honest because they're the ones that are probably least able right. to switch to alternative heating sources um, things like uh, um, you know uh, modular homes and mobile homes are not easily retrofitted um, for some of the types of technologies that would get you off of fossil fuels right. Um, so, so that's a, a, a problem. Um, and then the other thing that is, um, that is concerning is that if you start attaching, you know, carbon pricing to, to fuel sources, um, Chittenden County and parts of Addison County have access to the lowest carbon fuels today, which is mm. natural gas. Um, so overnight, we're going to be creating even a more of a disparity between the cost of fuel in Chittenden, cost of heating fuels in Chittenden County versus the rest of the state, because the rest of the state's going to be still on propane, heating oil, which are already more expensive than natural gas. We're going to make them even more expensive than natural gas um, under this sort of um, under this sort of mechanism. So that's a concerning thing as well, is that we're further increasing the disparity between Chittenden County and the rest of the state. Does anybody see this besides a few uh, handful of folks? I don't see the legislature getting this. They either don't get it or they don't yeah, care to get yeah. it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, um, and then the legislative studies, Ben, what, which ones stick out for you? Of course, we're always doing health care. That seems to be a study we do every year. Yeah, and there's some anywhere. interesting stuff happening in health care. Are there? We're seeing um, the Green Mountain Care Board getting much more aggressive about regulating some of the largest health care providers in the state. Um, which is, I think, encouraging. Uh, we're approaching a monopoly status in Vermont um, in terms of healthcare providers. And so um, the only way to really combat a monopoly is with a strong regulatory body. Mm-hmm. And the Green Mountain Care Board is stepping up to that challenge. I think this new chair is, um, it seems to be doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, just starting to move things along. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that we, you got to be careful of, too, with regulation is regulatory capture, right? Um, and this is where a, a mechanism that the largest companies in a certain industry use regulation to squeeze out any potential competitors. And hmm. we've seen some of that in the past right. as well um, in this sort of uh, in this sort of regulatory system that we have in healthcare. So. You know, there's two sides of the same coin. Regulation can be used to break up or challenge monopolies, but they can also be leveraged to create monopolies, depending right. on whatever the case is. And, and uh, you know, we got to be careful of both of those scenarios, I Absolutely. suppose. Absolutely. 
And where do they have the, I'm looking at this list, I don't see the study of what we were just talking about, about the S-5. Is that in this list somewhere? Uh, that's not a legislative study. That is in rulemaking. Oh, rule- oh yes, of course, because it's going to the public utilities. So that's something we should be watching, too, see what they do there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, honestly, some of the more interesting stuff uh, that would have been in legislative committees um, kind of got stuck in the veto process. Um, like, there would have been an interesting... Uh, there would have been an interesting legislative committee on elections, um, but that bill didn't pass. Right. So, um, so that's not happening this year. Maybe it'll happen next year. Was that where the um, ethics committee was supposed to look at municipalities? Yes, the that's ethics commission would have looked at municipalities, uh, extending, uh, um, you know, extending those laws to municipalities and their oversight authority. There's also going to be a ranked choice voting committee uh, that would have been interesting to follow. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, otherwise the most interesting thing I think is the, probably the public utility commission. Yeah. Okay. Proceedings. What was your favorite bill that got passed out? Mine was housing. I think, I think housing was certainly up there. Um, you know, I, I think, I think housing was probably, probably yeah. up there, but there was some interesting stuff across the board. Yeah. Honestly, I was, I thought it was great that, that they all got together. Republicans and Democrats, they all got the housing issue, mm-hmm. and they knew it needed to be fixed. Yeah, and, and hopefully they followed up this year with some meaningful Act 250 reforms. Yeah, um, well, that was, the, that was the thing that didn't happen. I had mm-hmm. Peter Tucker on from the, you know, from the Real Estate Association, and he went through the housing bill and seemed pretty pleased. But, again, they didn't do Act 250. Then nobody wants to tuckle, uh, tackle yeah. that. The apprenticeship bill is another great oh, one. Yeah. Um, I think that was another another good bill. Uh, the other, you know, this one sort of flew under the radar, but I would also say the property tax bill this year was pretty um, pretty impressive, uh, just in the the lack of controversy around it. Really, you know, property taxes are always mm-hmm. almost always controversial, um, but they I think they were smart with the investments they made with the uh, the the excess funds that they had this year. They also made investments to to try to level off property taxes next year. Good. Um, so they did something kind of unique where they have like, they have always, they always have a rainy day fund in, um, in for the education fund in case yep. like the floor falls out right. in a recession. Um, what they did this year though, is they created a special little fund that's just for next year to buy down the property tax rates right. for next year specifically. Um, Am I wrong? And didn't they borrow from the state's, um, rainy day fund either this year or the year before the year before the year did. before yep and here we have a flood and here we have a flood <laughs> i was so excited to remember that yeah um, well we had, they thought covid covid was was the thing that they were right. you know reacting to and they're like well we can spend some of our emergency funds on this right. which is a lot the time sort was logical sense, right? right um you know the, the problem is we also had a, a historic amount of federal funds coming in right um you know, and maybe we will from this flooding as well. But yeah. I mean, the the real problem for me when I look at it is this 12% increase in base spending that was in the budget makes us less resilient. There's less elasticity right. to address something like this flooding. Right. Because you know, I mean, obviously nobody knew. Mm-hmm. And here we know. are. Uh, what a disaster. Ben, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I love when you come on because the makes me realize what I didn't catch this legislative session. Um, So thank you all for listening. Um, Stay tuned. I have several people from Highway Safety. Uh, One issue we're going to talk about is the increase in deaths on our highway. 
So stay tuned. This is Pat McDonald, both of Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. This is Pat McDonald, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Um, I'm here with a whole bunch of folks. This is so exciting this morning. I have Dennis Wigman, who's from the Department of State's Attorneys and Sheriffs, reporting into Vermont State Highway Safety Office. That'll take some explaining, Dennis. Paul White and Bill Jenkins, from our law enforcement officers and liaisons with the Vermont State Highway Safety Office. Um, and the topic is rising number of deaths on Vermont highways and several other areas we wanted to cover. Um, let's just start. I wanted each of you to kind of talk about who you are and um, talk about your backgrounds and your present jobs. So, Paul, why don't you start? We're sharing mics this morning, so excuse us. Uh, so, uh, like Pat said, my name is Paul White, and um, I have worked with the State Highway Safety Office as a law enforcement liaison uh, as with Bill for it's been six years now, a little over six years. Um, I retired from the Vermont State Police. I retired in 2015 as a captain, and uh, after taking a little brief period of time off, went to work as a law enforcement liaison with the Highway Safety Office. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot, I think, about the State Highway Safety Office. Mm -hmm. So that's is what used to be known as the Governor's Highway Safety Program. Which reported into me Correct. when I was Commissioner of Motor Vehicles. Right. And so after that, the program moved to the Department of Public Safety for 20-some-odd years. And then in 2015, they moved it from DPS to the Agency of Transportation and rebranded it, essentially changed the name from Governor's Highway Safety Program to the State Highway Safety Office. And there have been law enforcement liaisons in the program for a long, long time. Uh, you probably were familiar with Tom Fields. Oh, for sure. Oh, um, this is going back yeah. a ways. <laughs> yep. Uh, I think Lee Graham, Chuck Satterfield, some Chuck. of the prior LELs. Um, so Bill and I have been filling that role since uh, 2017. Great. Excellent. Okay, who's up next? <laughs> Dennis, you want to? Sure. Uh, my name is Dennis Wigmans, and I'm uh, what they call a traffic safety resource prosecutor. It's a whole mouthful. Um, we're funded through the federal government, through the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I work out of the state's attorneys and sheriff's office, uh, which, well, until recently was in Montpelier, but right now we're kind of scattered everywhere because of the flood. Oh, um, but been doing this for just over a year. Before that, I was working as a state's attorney uh, in Addison County. Excellent. That's the NHTSA program you were spelling out there, wasn't it? Right, exactly. We uh, always people, talked about NHTSA. <laughs> yeah, people hear NHTSA, and that's what it actually stands for. Exactly. There you go. Okay, Bill, you want to jump in? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Bill Jenkins. Um, I'm also an LDL for the State Highway Safety Office. Uh, yeah, I've been working with Paul, as you said, since uh, about 2017. Uh, I cover the south end of the state, and uh, Paul covers the north, although we, we often blend uh, – our activities and uh, kind of share duties. Uh, my background is also with the state police. Uh, I retired in 2016 uh, as a lieutenant, uh, station commander out of the Royalton Barracks. 
you know, during my time at the state police, I worked, uh, I guess, at three different offices. So I was familiar with, uh, you know, a good chunk of the state. So I worked in Middlesex, uh, Royalton, and uh, down in Rockingham. So. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, so I've been doing this uh, job since, like I said, 2017. And uh, kind of it's opened uh, my eyes to kind of a whole different side of things. Um, you know, working with a lot more with uh, uh, the local police and the sheriff's departments and other entities of the state that I uh, didn't work as much with. And uh, so it's, it's been an interesting job. That's great. Um, I'm laughing because you worked at so many different places. Whenever my husband would go to visit different places, they would call him by the rank he was at at that time. Like it was Sergeant McDonald over in Middlebury. You ever get that when you go to different places? Oh, it's Sergeant McDonald. Yeah. Oh, it's Captain this. And it's it's just funny how they remember you because they do remember you. Well, they remember you a little bit. I'll say things change quickly. Uh, <laughs> if I go back to uh, my old office, you know, most of the troopers probably don't know me anymore. Oh, well, uh, yeah, they are a little younger these yes, days, aren't they? Yes, much younger. Yes, exactly. All right. So um, you have, uh, Paul, uh, why did you choose to get into highway safety? I just find it fascinating that it's a very interesting area for sure. Sure. So all of my career with the state police was in the uniform division. I was never a detective, so I was involved in traffic safety issues pretty much my whole career. Um, I did a stint with the state police commercial vehicle unit. Um, which you're familiar with, right, yes, with your right. time with DMV, um, and it's it just seemed sort of a natural fit. It's I was I was never uh, you know police officers tend to sort of take a certain track, either criminal investigators or traffic related, and I was always on that traffic Perfect. track. Um, so it just sort of was a, a natural thing. I had like Bill, I had had experience working all over the state between the commercial vehicle unit and I also was on the bomb squad for 16 years. Um, so that took me all over the state. I had contacts, I think, in pretty much all four corners of the state. So this it was kind of a seamless step into this role. There's the sh uh, show I should do, the bomb squad. Yeah. And that's very different <laughs> than it was when I retired Whoa. seven years ago, Well, too. I had the CBO, obviously, <laughs> yes. and that was always yeah. a little interesting, the relationship between state police there and, was always and a, motor vehicle CBO people. But we won't go there. there exactly. <laughs> it's very different now than it was then. That's good. Well, so. I hope that that's a good thing. So um, maybe, oh, go ahead, Dennis, I'm sorry. Could sure. you tell why you got into this field? Sure. As a state's attorney in a relatively rural county, um, about half of the work I was doing was highway safety related. Oh. Um, and we have probably, I'd say, at least a third to a half of our cases in, in Addison were DUIs uh, or negligent oh. operation cases. Um, and in addition, I visited a lot of, scenes, um, you know, fatality scenes. And oh. so the work has always fascinated me. There's a lot to learn uh, and a lot to um, be able to teach people in that. And I also saw new officers coming up that um, didn't really get all of the training they probably could have. And so um, that's what, you know, led me to go here was so that I could train some new officers. We also have a pile of new prosecutors throughout the state. Hmm. Um, many of whom haven't uh, been able to try a case in a number of years, even if they started uh, two or three years ago because of COVID. And of so, um, you know, I saw an opportunity to be able to teach people. I always enjoyed being a mentor to my uh, younger attorneys that worked in my office and so on. So that uh, led me to this position. That's really great. Bill? Uh, sure. Um, I actually did kind of do both sides during my career. 
Uh, so I was a detective for a little while, and even when I was a uniformed trooper, I uh, did a lot of criminal investigations. But I always felt that it was important to do both, and that traffic safety, like some troopers do take a very strong, uh, you know, criminal track, you know, criminal investigations. But I always felt that both sides were important, that you shouldn't ignore the traffic safety. Right. And uh, it was a very, very important part of the job. And, and really, the serious traffic offenses, DUI, you know, careless and negligent operation, uh, fatal fatality, fatal crashes, okay. those are criminal investigations. So oh. uh, really no different than, you know, say a homicide investigation. Right. You've got a fatal crash. It's really just as important. It's, it's a person who has died in a violent way. Especially and to the families, right? Exactly. It makes no difference to the family. I've said this many times. Right. It doesn't matter to the family if that person was killed in a homicide, killed in a fatal right. crash. Right. That is, both of those acts are, are a violent way to die, and it's very hard on a family to deal with that. So um, I always felt it was very important to thoroughly investigate those crashes and uh, do what you can to bring prosecution if, if necessary. Um, can one of you explain, you two are with, um, uh, the Highway Safety Safety Office, and um, Dennis is with the state's attorneys. How does that all work together, and what's the hierarchy of? Uh, that's a tough one. It sure. got a little confusing sure. when I was preparing for this uh, group meeting here. Well, <clears throat> Esther, well, let me just say first of all, every state every state has a Highway Safety Office. Uh, ours used to be called the Governor's Highway Safety Program. Now we just call it the State Highway Safety Office. Um, but every state has one. Um, they're named different things in different states. But it's essentially it's a it's an entity of state government whose main purpose is to receive federal funding from NHTSA and pass it off to different either other state agencies, nonprofits, uh, police. A lot a lot of it goes to police departments. Um, we receive that federal funding for highway safety issues, and we pass it off to other entities. And one of the entities that receives that funding is the Department of State's Attorneys and okay. Sheriffs to pay for the two pr traffic safety resource prosecutors. Pass to you, Dave. Exactly. And so every state uh, has a traffic safety resource prosecutor and D.C. and Puerto Rico. Some of us have two, and we're lucky to have two uh, here in Vermont. And what kind of um, issues do you prosecute? Uh, obviously, DUI, I'm assuming. Uh, all DUI and negligent operation cases, um, you know, could be, you know, in my scope of, right. of authority, so to speak. And that but, impaired driving? Is correct, that, correct. And what, can I just ask you, back to drugs, what are we doing these days to, I, as he laughs, to identify overuse of drugs on a highway crash? Well, I, I laugh because it's a complicated answer. Uh, um, we have um, in Vermont uh, a cadre of what's called drug recognition experts. Right. Uh, those are specially trained law enforcement officers who go through a rigorous school uh, in order to be able to learn how to recognize certain signs and symptoms of impairment from different categories of drugs. Um, different drugs obviously affect yeah. you differently mm -hmm. um, and uh, even affect people differently from day to day. So um, they go to the school. They have a field certification program. I actually am on the board to help select uh, folks who might be interested in, in DREs. I teach at the school as well. Um, and so those folks throughout the state, um, we've had a diminished number. I know that we reached a high of 62 statewide. Wow. I think we're uh, down to, into the 30s now, um, mid-30s at this point. Um, but the uh, call for them has just increased over time. And so they're called to the site, obviously, to 
uh, uh, because then you otherwise you have to bring the the person up to the hospital for a blood test, right? Sure. So uh, the drug recognition experts, the you know more commonly referred to as DREs, they'll be called to usually a station house. So um, oh, the field okay. or arresting officer is done their investigation roadside, determines somebody's impaired, and then the DRE's job is to you know spend some time with that individual, determine whether or not it's a medical impairment, which right. does uh, happen. Um, we've had a couple of DREs actually save a couple people's lives who were um, either in the early uh, onset of a stroke or something wow. similar and recognize that this wasn't uh, impairment due to uh, some sort of you know, drug that they had yeah, taken, medical. but it was actually medical and wow. called the uh, ambulance one. They started that when I was um, in motor vehicles. That was quite a while yeah. ago. So they've been around a while, obviously effective. Since the mid-90s, yeah. um, reasonably effective so far. Um, we have, uh, you know, there are two tiers of uh, certification. Uh, Vermont has the highest uh, level of certification for our DREs uh, throughout the country. Um, and, you know, we have, I think we just did a class of four graduates. Oh, good. I hope they're still trying to work on something for on-site testing, or has that been given up sort of? Well, um, the difficulty is that uh, unlike alcohol, where we have over 100 years of research and uh, the absorption and elimination of alcohol is pretty linear and pretty predictable from person to person, most drugs don't uh, interact with the body in the same way. Uh, cannabis, for example, you know, THC attaches to cannabinoid receptors throughout the body. Uh, we have opioid receptors that also, you know, opiates and opioids uh, connect to. So um, the duration, onset and duration of those particular drugs, um, very difficult to predict. And there is no correlation between some drugs in your bloodstream and the level of impairment you're going to see. So um, blood test is usually just used for confirmatory purposes. I tried those, dr those glasses on one time that yeah. make you think you're impaired. Good grief. Yeah. I would not like to be like that. I like to see and think on my own. Thank you very much. Um, so you, um, so from a, a structural perspective from State Highway, because you work with so many different people, what's the what's the pecking order sort of in the agency of transportation? Can you take that, Anna? Yeah, so, so the Highway Safety Office um, falls within, like I said, it moved back in 2015 from public safety over to VTrans, and it falls within the highway division of the Agency of Transportation, and more specifically under the Operations and Safety Bureau. Um, but it's the, the program is pretty much self-sufficient. It's, it's moved from, from the State Department to State Department pretty much intact. Um, there's a, a, an administrator in charge of the program. There's uh, a couple of program coordinators that manage the grants. We have a media and outreach person. Uh, we have a, a business manager, and then Bill and I as the law enforcement liaisons. That's great. Excellent. I actually am thinking about this. It really does belong in AOT, um, in transportation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the deal that was struck between then Commissioner Flynn at Public yep. Safety and Secretary Minter right. at uh, AOT, and it, it seemed to make sense at the time to yeah, move it. Yeah, it does. It, 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 it does. It aligns with a lot of AOT's priorities, like work zone safety. Right. And all exactly. That, right. Um, yeah. So on a crash, do you go out to the crash, or how does that work when there's a, a crash? Are you involved in the in investigating it after the fact sort of things? Um, I'll, we'll give you the hard one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Go ahead. So we're 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 in a support role, so we don't actually go out in the field anymore. Okay. Um, so like we don't actually go to the scene. It's it's more that we uh, try to support agencies. 
to enhance their crash investigations. Okay. And we also analyze the crash investigations ah, with our with data. The data right. Exactly. Yeah. So we obviously encourage, we, we uh, help fund like a uh, crash reconstruction team that the state police has and obviously a DRE program. And so at a crash, at a serious crash scene, like a fatality, uh, ideally both the crash reconstruction team and a DRE will go um, to try, you know, to make right. it as in-depth investigation right. as possible. So we, we certainly support all that, um, but we don't actually physically go to the scene or, or uh, investigate crashes like that. But uh, also back on the data unit, uh, it's a very important part of what we do or what our unit right. does. And uh, we, we always encourage uh, agencies to submit their crash reports on time or, or in a timely manner because what I didn't realize when I was on the road is just how important that data is. And uh, now I do and re right. realize just how important all that data on those crash forms is because uh, it really helps us track the trends, where they happen, why they happen, and things like that. And even, even for the engineers, like if they're happening on curves or intersections, and, you know, does a road need to be improved? So those crash uh, reports are actually very important. Excellent. Thank you. We have Jim and Barry who's calling in to ask a question of my guest. Go ahead, Jim. Hi. Good morning. Good morning, Craig. Morning to your guests. Morning. I've tried to get an answer to this question for a number of years, and I'm not sure if this is the right panel or not, but I'll, I'll try anyway. A number of years ago, I was driving uh, through snow during a snowstorm, and Route 100 was all snow covered till you got to snow, and it was bare pavement. And then I continued to cross and all back to snow. And when I was at uh, Billings Mobile, I pulled in, and there was a state highway truck there. And I said, how come snow has bare roads in the village, and, and you have all snow-covered roads here? He said, well, they're plowed by the town there, and they use a lot more salt. And then in discussing with some other people who used to work for state highway, they said, and I'm not sure of these numbers, but before, Proportionally, they're accurate. I think you said we used to use 150 tons per mile or, or 150 pounds per mile, whatever it was, and it went down to 100. So I, I guess my question is, it's always been discussed, safe roads at safe speeds. I'm sure there's a matrix, or, or do you use some kind of a matrix of how to measure your effectiveness in terms of um, winter safety? Well, I think this is this at, is not zero. I'm sorry. No, that's okay, Jim. I'm going to tell you. I don't think this is the group that would answer that question. Anybody jump in? I can answer it for you if you want. You got one? Uh, unfortunately, the the group that's currently here today really deals with the behavioral side of things. We deal with drivers and trying to keep drivers doing things appropriately. Where none of us here are involved in highway maintenance or or the decisions behind what goes into highway maintenance. So I'm afraid I. I would not be able to answer that question for you. Yeah, every year they set a policy about either clear roads or a certain level of clear roads, and it's and a lot of it's got to do with funding, of course. But um, um, and the towns set their own policies. If they want clear roads, that's what they do, and that's what you see in Stowe. If the if the state is saying a little less than 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 clear, well, that's what happens. But they do try to determine what's the what's safe. And uh, if you drive the right speed on the highway, on the state highways, it will be safe. So thanks, Jim, for the question. Sorry, uh, this wasn't the group. Um, but we will continue on. That snow thing is every year. <laughs> it doesn't stop. And uh, I, it's what it is. 
So earlier you had asked about crash yes. uh, support. Um, I actually do take calls uh, from oh. officers and emails from um, or text messages from prosecutors uh, at the time of a crash. Oh, great. Uh, a lot of times, you know, it's obviously law related um, and what, you know, can be done within the scope of what they learn at the scene as far as collecting evidence is concerned. So yeah. from that perspective, um, I mean, I have to say, thankfully, I don't have to go to the scene uh, any longer, but I do. Um, this you know, times. Can we arrest support. or can we not arrest question? Um, more uh, evidence-based. Oh, evidence. Okay, yeah. right. CSI. I love it. <laughs> They do, do you, they, uh, they do, um, what is, what is the, when you take the blood? Um, uh, phlebotomy? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, they do it so quick. How do they do that? You guys take days. <laughs> yeah, practice, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. DNA was what I was thinking oh, of. Oh, yeah. They yeah. have the DNA. It can do it right on the spot for having yeah, exactly. sex. Guys got to get with the program. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, I have a minute before we go to break. So um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, the, the thing that you mentioned was the um, subcommittee that uh, that works, and you're on it, I think you mentioned it, um, that you're on this subcommittee, which gets involved with um, Vermont Criminal Justice Council, law enforcement, impaired driving, crash investigations. I don't know what the name of that is, but it's, uh, are, you that, are you on that, Paul? Uh, yeah, uh, Bill and I both are. Yeah, I think, right. so the, the Criminal Justice Council, it used to be called the Criminal Justice Training Council. They dropped the word training because so they, they get involved in more than just training now. Uh, but the Criminal Justice Council has a number of different subcommittees, one of which is the Highway Safety Subcommittee. And um, it was started just prior to COVID. Um, the idea was that this, this subcommittee would be able to advise the Criminal Justice Council on things related to um, highway safety matters, whether it's training or curriculum or, or, or whatever. I know April was Distractive Driving Month, Awareness Month. Uh, could you talk about uh, what was happening that month? Because that's a really important area. Sure, I'll take that one. So uh, NHTSA runs a number of campaigns uh, through the year. Actually, every month is a, a different aspect of highway safety that's focused on. But we run uh, five campaigns uh, that that uh, focus on either uh, seatbelt or occupant protection okay. or uh, uh, impaired driving. Uh, back in 2019, uh, NHTSA decided to start a new campaign for distracted driving. And April is Distracted Driving Month. And Paul and I kind of switch off on who uh, runs the campaigns. And, you know, it just happened that I ended up with the distracted driving. So... Um, just wanted to give a quick uh, definition of distracted driving. So it's basically any activity that diverts attention from driving, including talking or texting on the phone, eating or drinking, talking to other people in the car, uh, listening to the radio or, or looking at the radio or navigation system. Basically anything that takes your, uh, your attention away from the task of driving. Uh, there's four major type, types of distraction. So visual, uh, looking at something other than where you should be on the road or where you're going. Uh, audio, either hearing or listening to something not related to your driving. Uh, manual, that's like manipulating something uh, other than the vehicle controls. Uh, or cognitive, basically thinking, daydreaming, think about something other than driving. And so we focus a lot on phones, right? That seems to be, mm -hmm. when we talk about distracted driving, we're talking about phones for the most part. I mean, of course, there's all, all sorts of other things, like I just said, you know, you know, eating, whatever. But phones is a major distraction. And if you think about it, a phone can cover all four types at the same time, like simultaneously. So you can be looking at the device, right? You can be listening to it while you're looking at it. You can be texting or manual operating it. And obviously, that's taking your mind off the task of driving. So 
that's why I think the phone is such a distracting device because it can cover all, you know, maybe if you're just listening, you can still focus on the road. But if you're doing all four of those things or taking your attention off driving, you're very distracted and really not paying attention to what you're doing. So for distracted driving month, just real quick, uh, you know, we had a press conference at Milton High School. Uh, it was kind of a two-part thing. We had a traditional press conference initially, and then we had a uh, event for the high school kids where we had like a coned-off course in the uh, gym, and we had uh, pet these pedal cars that uh, Milton Police Department had, and they first they went around the course without being distracted, and then we had them you know use their phones. Oh, cool. And you know the goal was obviously to have a little bit of fun, but at the same time teaching them. Uh, why they shouldn't drive distracted at the same time. And then, then we, we uh, encourage uh, agencies to participate in the distracted driving campaign, high visibility, high visibility enforcement campaign, and uh, which goes for about five days in the early part of April. And we got a decent amount of participation from that. And, uh, you know, it's important. You know, it's like a two-prong, right, education and enforcement. And I think that's important to have both parts. And then, you know, and on the uh, education side, we also uh, have a, a media program called Drive Well Vermont. You may have seen it. I saw that, right. And part of it, we have distracted driving commercials. And basically, it's the goal is to send kind of a positive message instead of, uh, you know, being so negative all the time and basically saying, you know, uh, the right thing to do, right, is right. not to be distracted. And let's, let's, let's all do that to look out for each other. That's great. Well, I know at the uh, there's a lot of discussion about we're all involved in this, and it's all our responsibility. Um, we're in this together, so you got to shape up. Uh, we saw some people today on the interstate, honest to goodness, I don't know where they were going, but they were going <laughs> faster than we were. Uh, it's pretty scary. Uh, anyway, so um, you have a, a, a strategic plan. I love strategic plans. Um, I always wait. Every, every department I ever went into, we were just doing our strategic plan. Ah. Uh, it's it's coming up with the mission statement that takes longer than the plan because every every <laughs> word is important. It's like Very oh, true. just do the job. That's it. You'll know it when you do it. Um, anyway, um, the, but the plan focused on the, what they call the four E's of of highway safety: education, enforcement, engineering, and emergency services. And I'd like to discuss them in a little different order. Engineering struck my struck me. Uh, a little bit. What's what does engineering mean in your world? Sure. So I mean, we don't have a whole lot to do with that, but this this strategic highway. We actually have there are actually three plans. There's there's the strategic highway safety plan, which is a five year document mm -hmm. um, that the state puts together to talk about our long term goals. There's the highway safety plan, the HSP, which is something that the highway safety office oh, that cool. we do every single year, which basically is just us telling NHTSA how we intend to spend the federal money that they send us. And then there's something called the Highway Safety Improvement Plan, which uh, I'm afraid I couldn't talk about because we're not in, at all involved in that. Um, but as far as the your question about engineering, um, it gets into things like um, roadway curvatures, mm. um, redesigning intersections. You know, you've seen in the last few years, you've seen a lot of intersections reconfigured to maybe go from a Y to a T-shaped intersection yep. for better visibility. Um, guardrails, making sure that the right type of guardrail, reflective markers, um, 
remember a few years ago they replaced all the signage on the interstate because then they came out with a different font that's right. supposed to be better easier for people to see and comprehend so those are the kind of things that would go into engineering to try to keep excellent and you guys safer. are involved in that discussion and well so for bill and i we um we will go out some if there's a particularly problematic section of road like it's see it's seeing a lot of crashes mm-hmm. or a lot of complaints or a lot mm-hmm. of speeding um aot will do what they call a road safety audit review they'll go out we'll go to the scene bill and i participate in those we'll go out we'll we'll measure the speeds we'll measure the traffic volume we'll go walk the site get out of the car and walk the sites yeah. make sure that the signage is up to date and compliant with with national standards and then everybody puts their heads together and comes up with a list of recommendations of what can we do to make that particular road segment safer that's great yes if i could just add a quick thing that engineering is actually one of the things i learned uh, in this job that i kind of took for granted that's actually incredibly important and I, I didn't realize just how important it was so you know we talk about speed right you know there's actually things that the engineers can do with the roadways that actually reduce how fast people will drive right and again i kind of took that for granted but uh like so if you narrow so, so the the majority of people will drive at a speed they kind of feel comfortable at there's always the outliers people will drive fast no matter what or people drive slow no matter what but the majority of people will kind of drive at a speed where they feel comfortable so the road can actually be designed, like it can be narrowed, and mm-hmm. if it's narrowed, people don't feel so comfortable driving fast. They'll actually slow down. Or like there's a little hash mark sometimes you'll see painted in. Mm-hmm. So that'll actually give people like the illusion that they're driving faster, so they'll actually slow down. So there's a number of things. I certainly don't know them all, but um, that I learned, that I found out that actually the engineers can have a big uh, effect or uh, mm-hmm. on how, how people actually drive. Excellent. Yes, go ahead. And rotaries, um, you know, and we're seeing that I think the double diamond is being put up, put up, up mm-hmm. in Colchester. Um, rotaries actually save lives. Um, out, I was out at a, a highway safety conference in Washington, and the, um, the department head of uh, transportation there was talking about how they've been putting uh, rotaries in, and they've seen where they put rotaries in an 85% decrease in the amount of crashes at those wow, intersections. People don't understand rotaries. Uh, I, my mother, my yeah. mother is an older lady, yeah. older than me, and, I, and she couldn't get that to save herself. <laughs> we take her out. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> there is a definite learning curve. If you've driven an intersection a certain way your entire life, and now all of a sudden there's a, a roundabout right. or a rotary there, it it takes a little practice. Yep. Um, but they, who's got the right away? I think is, right. the, is the challenge. What, what drives me crazy is if, if you go to Maine or New Hampshire and they have these two-lane roundabouts where there's two yeah, lanes oh, going scary. around at the same time. Yep. That's uh, and now we pull a travel trailer through that, and it's <laughs> we run into really, one of those really on hairy. our way to uh-huh. Maine. Yes. Right. Yeah, well, it does make people stop and start to think about what they're doing, too, and that, right. you know, might wake them up and make them more, you know, exactly. thoughtful about their right. travel right. through that intersection. We had a lot of discussion with AOT, and I'm sure you guys are involved in when I worked part-time for Barry, and we were doing a bike path, and, mm-hmm. and a, just the walking path itself, plus a, plus a bike, bike lane right down 302. That was a challenge, because... Everybody needs to be educated, including the walkers and the bikers. Yeah. And right. Well, and you you hear people talk a lot about what they call a road diet. Maybe. Oh yes. And right. that's some, that's one that's, that's one of the engineering things, yeah. like Bill was talking about, where you know the the roadway is still the same roadway, but just by changing the way it's painted, exactly. can have an impact on how fast people drive. Yeah, that's yeah. a great discussion because I went to yeah. the uh, I went to one of the presentations on the road diet, yeah. and it was it was fascinating. I learned a lot. That was great. I heard some 
sort of distressing news that our numbers are going up these days, and I'd like these gentlemen to talk about um, what's happening out in the roadways and what we can do to prevent the speed. Somebody want to start off, Paul? Uh, sure. So, I mean, just to, to lead into that, um, COVID was COVID is a really strange situation. You know, when when COVID hit and the governor issued the stay home, stay safe order and everybody was sort of in lockdown in their homes, we all sort of assumed, you know, there's fewer people out and about, fewer people on the road, crashes, crashes should go down, right? Think. You would think with fewer people driving, there would be fewer crashes, but we actually saw just the opposite. They, they either fatalities either stayed the same or actually increased. Um, and I think that I attribute some of that to the fact that you know when that when the order came out to stay home and to isolate, most of your average everyday person abided by that and they stayed home. But you, there's a certain uh, segment of our population, I you know I refer to them as risk takers. That they didn't stay home when the when the order came out to stay home, they didn't stay home. They were out driving around like usual. And what did they find? They found open roads with not a lot of traffic and very little enforcement taking place. Yahoo. And so it was yeah, it was pedal down, and uh, we saw a huge increase in speeds, and we saw increases in fatal crashes, unfortunately. And after a couple of years of that, that's that's a hard situation to rein back in when it went, um, you know, I won't say that there was no enforcement, but, you know, law enforcement was put in a tough position where um, they couldn't risk, you know, you, if they you pull a police officer, pulls somebody over for speeding, not knowing that person's situation, you know, they're potentially exposing themselves to COVID right. and then taking ah. and then taking that back to the station and infecting right. their entire right. station with COVID. So naturally there was there was a, re, a an intentional reduction in law enforcement because they just wanted to reduce the interaction between the police officers and the general public to not risk infecting the police officer and not risk infecting right. the public. Um, and it didn't take doesn't take long for the motoring public to realize people aren't getting pulled over anymore. Right. Uh, if you drive the interstate every day and you never see anybody pulled over, you know, today you maybe you're going five over. Tomorrow you're going to go 10 over. The next day maybe you're going 15 over. And, it, and that's a difficult um, practice to turn around and rein back in. So now here we are post-COVID and um, people have been kind of unrestricted for a number for two or three years and we have what three years worth of brand new police officers that have come through the police academy in that mindset of mm, maybe we don't want to pull somebody over because they might have covid right wow does anybody do you have statistics at all uh we do but i was just going to add oh, yes, to, to um that and that is that um you know, back in the 50s and 60s and up into the early 90s, we were seeing about 50,000 Americans dying every year on our highways. Um, we started a lot of uh, education, a lot of enforcement that brought those numbers down. And to, uh, you know, about 2010, we were around 30, 33,000 uh, hmm. highway fatalities. And Vermont also saw our numbers go way down. But since to about 2010, we've been marching back up. Um, and, you know, about 42,000 last year, wow. so um, nationwide. And uh, we've seen that increase also in yep. Vermont. And so These are fatal crashes. Right. And part of it is, as you noticed, people are speeding, uh, yeah, driving right. pretty fast. And I think people are too um, complacent about what those five-star ratings on car safety means. 
and how those studies are conducted versus uh, real life situations. And um, I think they have a you know, false sense of safety that they're not uh, being mindful of 60 miles an hour isn't 30 miles an hour. Right. What scares me is everything happens so fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a flash, you're sailing through the air or somebody's crashing into you or who the heck, or the, a flat tire or something. It just happens. Bill, do you have any comments about this? You want to weigh in? Just that, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, departments are still struggling with staffing issues right, uh, for any number of reasons. And uh, that is also contributing because it's it's difficult. You know, they're taking the day-to-day calls um, and they're short-staffed. And it's difficult for them to then get out right. and proactively uh, patrol. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't obey the laws, people, because they're there for a reason. And they're set at the speed they're set at for your safety, right? I mean, they they judge when 40, 55, 65 is appropriate. So do you have stats? um, We we do have, um, you know, I mean, these are stats as of the 11th uh, of this uh, month. Um, You know, so far we've seen uh, 32 total fatal crashes uh, in the state. Um, You know, for example, in 2019, we had 44 uh, for the – same time period so that's you know reflects how we've gone yeah. up but then if you look you know uh annually um you know 76 uh total fatalities last year on our roadways but back in uh, 2019 we only had 47 total so wow. um Is, massive are they increase. broken down by dui by um um what we were we just talking about you know using your cell phone or distracted driving yeah, I mean, we do. There is a there's a unit within VTrans that studies all of this data mm-hmm. that comes in from the crash reports, and they break it down a number of different ways. They do look at um, drivers involved in fatal crashes that were suspected of being under the influence of alcohol, under the influence of drugs, under the influence of alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do look at the number of fatals that uh, involved a driver suspected of speeding. Um, they look at commercial vehicles, uh, they, people that were wearing seatbelts versus not yeah. wearing seatbelts. So they, they, they slice and dice the data a number of different ways, yeah. trying to, trying to provide us with the information that we can use with our grantees and with law enforcement to, to try to focus our enforcement efforts on the right places. People should know if they get caught mm-hmm. not using their seatbelt, the first time is $150, the second time is 300 something. That'll wake you right up. Even just yeah. if you don't want to worry about right. your life, <laughs> worry about yeah. your pocketbook. And we are seeing, you know, an increase, unfortunately, in the number of fatalities with folks that aren't wearing their seatbelts, especially uh, backseat. Um, I mean, just this past weekend, a woman, I think of 71 years old, was ejected from the motor vehicle uh, in a crash, in a single car crash. I think it was in Rutland County um, because she wasn't wearing her seatbelt. And, and I she don't... was in the back? Right. The back. Now, and... I must say, I don't. I, I bet other people are like me. I don't think about building up people in the back seat as often as I should. I just don't, and you guys are making me nervous. I, I, I think of the front seat drivers, but not the back seat. It's ejections uh, that are most concern, concerning when you're in the back, especially. Um, you know, And I've been to crashes where people uh, died in the back seat that right. would have survived had they been wearing their safety belts. Now, I would have thought that seat belt wearing has gotten better. Because of all of the ads and, and all of the attention, people do pay do pay attention. 
It has. And, you know, in Vermont is what we call a secondary state, meaning you can't be pulled over by a police officer for simply not wearing your seatbelt. You have to be pulled over for something else first. But even though we're a secondary state, our seatbelt usage rates is comparable to states that are considered primary states. So uh, we have gained a lot of ground. You know, we we measure it every year. We we have a contract with a company that goes out and they stand or sit at – you know, predetermined locations every year, year after year, and document how many people are wearing the seatbelts and how many are not. And our our average usage rate has gone steadily upwards over the last couple of decades, um, roughly around 90% compliance right. with the seatbelt law, which is roughly compatible with uh, the states that have a primary law. But, you know, that's still 10% of the people out there not wearing the seatbelts that potentially could lose their life if they're rejected from a car I'm during a crash. i to be too honest yeah. here. Um, and I'll probably get stopped when I leave here. Um, <laughs> when I go on long distance, I put it on all the time. When I go short distances, I do sometimes. Yep. So, and that's when most of the accidents happen, right? right? Going around your own. Yes. So, what is wrong yep. with my thinking? Um, because I, I'm, you know, I'm just going down the street, hop in the car, and zip over. But that's when most of the accidents happen, right? And it's also, you know, it has a lot to do with the design of vehicles that are popular right now. Uh, they're much more prone to rollovers than a lot of the vehicles because you see your SUVs and your pickup trucks. Those are pretty easy to, you know, tip over Whoa. in a collision. Well, that's interesting to know. You didn't hear it from the manufacturers, did you? No. <laughs> so what are we doing about this, gentlemen? We have five minutes. Five minutes. Well, we um, fix it for us. In yeah, five minutes. if if it. only it was that easy. <laughs> um, we we do a number of things. You know, we we already talked about the enforcement campaigns. The bill talked about the five major campaigns, which you know we do the click it or ticket campaign, or what used to be called the click it or ticket campaign every every year in May. We have the distracted driving campaign in April. We do two impaired driving campaigns. One that is at the end of August, leading into Labor Day, and then the second one runs in mid to late December ending on New Year's. And then the fifth one is a uh, Thanksgiving holiday campaign. That's where these five five campaigns are where we really, we're always encouraging law enforcement to get out and be more proactive with their enforcement. But during these five campaigns, we really turn up the volume, so to speak, where we're really encouraging them to go out, use their grant funding, have as much contact with the motoring public as they can. You know, we we don't tell them whether they have to write a ticket or not, but we really encourage them to be out and be visible um, and making a presence on the that highway. That certainly helps yeah. when they're out there and you yes, see them. Yes, it does. Um, we also do a number of uh, media and outreach things. We have, like I mentioned, we have a person in our office that um, whose whole job is to work on media. You're coming up with new, the, you mentioned the Drive Well Vermont slogan. That's right. that's something new. The, the messaging from NHTSA over the years has always sort of been like the, the stick, not the carrot, right. like drive sober. I like the or, carrot yeah. approach. Yeah. So then they've for years have focused on the, you know, click it or ticket or drive hammered. One of the, one of the most popular ones was drive hammered and get nailed. Um, <laughs> there's always like the, there's all, the, the messaging has always sort of been like, do this or else we're going to do that. Yeah, right, and so we've, you. we've turned it around and tried to make it more positive messaging, you know, convincing people to do the right thing just because it's the right thing do to do. Do you hit up the um, schools and the older kids who are driving? Um, we don't so much ourselves, but we do have a number of grantees. We partner with the Department of Health. Uh, there's an organization called Local Motion that focuses on uh, bicyclists and pedestrian safety issues. We partner with 
AARP. We partner oh, with a whole bunch of different entities that we provide grant funding to um, who are kind of like our boots on the ground That's to great. go out and Excellent. interact with the public. And myself and, you know, my partner, uh, TSRP, we also do go to schools and uh, help out with pre- presentations. Um, there's a couple of different plaintiffs, attorneys, organizations that uh, have some presentations based on, um, you know, people getting injured or killed and distracted driving. Uh, and so, you know, we do that as well. Excellent. Cool. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I touched upon it earlier. I think it's a, a two-pronged approach with education and enforcement. If you think about it, I mean, I'm old enough to be, you know, remember the 80s. Uh, hmm. The attitude about DUI was much different back then. For sure. And through both education and enforcement, uh, that changed. I just want to say one quick thing. I just want to feel like we remiss not to mention Officer Jessica Ebbinghauser. Absolutely. Who was her funerals today? Yes. Who was killed tragically by a reckless, yep. selfish person right. uh, driving incredibly recklessly? And I just yeah. uh, want to keep her uh, in our thoughts and prayers yeah. and her her family, friends, and coworkers. Thank you very much, Bill. That was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I thank you to my guest, uh, Dennis Wigman, uh, who's from the Department of State's Attorneys and Sheriffs, Paul White and Bill Jenkins, who are law enforcement liaison. Um, you were right about what they used to do years ago. I remember in high school, the, the videos they would show mm. us scare the whatever out of us. I still remember one or two of them with the people screaming, oy they. But anyway, thank you all very much. And don't forget, we're going to close out this show by reminding everyone that we are, we all play a part in making Vermont roads safer. So get to it. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Yeah, thank, thank, you. You. thank you. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.